Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would open your scriptures to us today, uh, that we would hear your word and we would be made into those who do your word. Uh, Father, we ask that your spirit would fill us, uh, that you would allow us to worship you in truth and in spirit, um, as Pastor David prayed. Lord, I ask that um, you would show us what you mean by being born again and the absolute necessity of regeneration in our walk with you. We're thankful, Father, that all of salvation is in your hands, and it is not in our hands. And we're thankful that even though we are sinful, you sent your Son to die on the cross, to take our sins upon himself, and to reconcile us to you, making peace by the blood of his cross. We pray that you be glorified today and that we would hear your word and receive it and it would strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So we can still say Merry Christmas. It's the third day of Christmas, if you know the song, right? Um, It's the third day of Christmas. God has come in the flesh. Emmanuel was born of the Virgin Mary and has come to save his people from their sins. It was necessary that the Son had to become man The Son of God had to become man. It was necessary for our salvation. But today, we're going to talk about a different kind of birth. So if Christmas is about the birth of the Son, today we're actually going to be talking about the new birth. What does Jesus mean to Nicodemus when he says, you must be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God? Uh, Theologically speaking, we use the word regeneration. Regeneration. This is what the new birth is called, theologically speaking. And so, how does regeneration, or the new birth, relate to Jesus' birth? Uh, John Piper, in a book called Finally Alive, writes this. The new birth and all of its effects, including faith and justification and purification and final conformity to Christ in heaven, would not be possible without the incarnation and life and death and resurrection of Jesus without Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. The incarnation of the Son of God is also necessary because the life we have through the new birth is life in union with the incarnate Christ. 
So why did I pick this topic? Well, it's related to Christmas, but also it is an extremely important mark of a healthy church to have a biblical understanding of conversion, of how a person comes to believe in Jesus and is reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Christ. Uh, Mark Dever writes a book called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, and he has a very shortened version, which I would recommend, called What is a Healthy Church? And in this, he highlights nine marks, imagine that, nine marks that make up a healthy church. And he divides these marks into two camps, what he calls essential and what he calls important. The essential marks are ex, you know, expository preaching, going verse by verse, book by book, um, so that all of God's word and his will is heard. And you don't just skip over parts that you don't like. Biblical theology and a biblical understanding of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. Now, moving on into just the, you know, the important marks, right? He had church leadership, and then the one that we're going to focus on today, a biblical understanding of conversion. A biblical understanding of conversion. Um, let me give a, a kind of wordy explanation of conversion. This comes from the 1833 New Hampshire Confession of Faith. It's very wordy, but we'll, we'll break it down. It says, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties, and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deep Christ winced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness. In the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and prayer for mercy. At the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on Him alone, as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Really wordy, right? But if we broke it down, conversion is, in essence, when we repent of sins and trust in Jesus for salvation because of a work that the Holy Spirit has done in our hearts, which is called regeneration. So our text today is about that second part, the work that the Holy Spirit must do in our hearts in order for us to truly trust the Savior as all-sufficient and our Savior alone and also to repent of sins. Regeneration is what we're talking about today. So without a biblical understanding of conversion and a biblical practice of conversion, we run the risk of convincing some that they are in Christ when they really are not. And that's important. In understanding conversion, we know how to counsel others into trusting the Lord Jesus and the gospel. And so that's kind of why uh, we've selected it for today. To kind of set us up going into the new birth, I wanted to give a, an analogy that Charles Spurgeon uses in a sermon called Spiritual Resurrection, which is about the new birth. Um, he uses the three times that Christ resurrected people in his ministry as a metaphor for how sin, though it can look different in different people's lives, some people can appear to be alive when really they are dead, and others you can look at them and you're like, clearly dead. He uses it to show kind of the trickiness so Jesus raises the young daughter Jairus of Jairus, who literally had just died when Jesus had gotten there. She still had the color of life in her cheeks. She was still in the clothes she wore as when she was living, and yet she was dead. He resurrected the young man who was being carried to the tomb. So he had very recently died, but a little bit later on. He looked a bit more dead since he was being carried to his tomb, it was publicly acknowledged that he was dead. He was probably already dressed in his grave clothes. 
There were more outward factors indicating that he was dead. And yet, the daughter of Jairus, for all her looks of life, was just as dead as this second person on the way to his grave. And then he he points to the final one that Jesus resurrected, Lazarus, who is in the fourth day of his death. He was already in the grave, and as the King James Version says, he stinketh, right? He stinketh. And Jesus resurrects him. And Spurgeon's point in all of this is Ephesians 2. We are dead in our trespasses before God saves us. Some of us might look more alive than others. Some of us might have more respectable sins that are accepted by society, whereas other of us might be going around murdering and causing all kinds of atrocities that are just apparent evil. And yet, if Christ is not... if If the Holy Spirit has not regenerated our hearts, we are just as dead as Lazarus. Fourth day, first hour, just as dead. All three of these cases needed a resurrection of equal magnitude. And in every case of of humans, we need the new birth in order to properly trust in Christ and repent of our sins. So let's look at this conversation. We're going to start in chapter 223. And our first point is this. Uh, We're asking the same question that the text asks. Uh, Well, what is in mankind? What is in mankind? Sin and death. God writes through John chapter 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, God is with him. And so verses 23 through 25 really are the preface to Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus. There are many people in verse 23 that literally it says, They believed in his name because they saw signs. And yet the next verse is shocking. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. How can one be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And yet here we have a group of people who are believing in the Lord Jesus, and yet Jesus is not, on his part, entrusting himself to them. So what's going on here? Simply put, Not all faith is saving faith. This is a terrifying prospect. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word believe or faith over a hundred times. It's the most used word in the Gospel of John. One of his main purposes for using this word so much is he's showing you all the different kinds of faith in this world. And he's trying to point out this is what saving faith looks like, and here's what faith that doesn't save looks like. Or another way of saying that is He's trying to teach the church a biblical understanding of conversion. So now why did Jesus not entrust himself to these people? In verse 25 it tells us, He knew what was in man. What is in mankind? A quick survey of Scripture paints a very dim and dark picture. Uh, Genesis 6-5, preceding the flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Isaiah 6.5, when Isaiah sees the holiness of God, he sees a, a glimpse of the king, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Psalm 51, 3-5, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. It doesn't get any better in the New Testament. Paul gives this long chain quote from the Old Testament in Romans 3. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Bible is not good for self-esteem, right? It's not through Jesus, by the Spirit, we are the walking dead. When Jesus uh, looks into the heart of mankind, he sees this and he says, there is nothing here that warrants saving. There is nothing in us that warrants God to say, this creation, this creature is worth saving. We are utterly against him. We bring death to whatever we touch and rebellion wherever we we go. And yet, later on, the same Paul who wrote that lovely chain says in Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then later on, two verses later, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, how much more now are we reconciled or that we are reconciled? Shall we be saved by his life? And so, in a point here, Jesus came not because he looked down and he said, oh, there's some worth. I need to go save that person. Instead, Jesus came down because he and his father wanted to save us, even in the midst of our death, even in the midst of our sin, even in the midst of our rebellion. Our value and beauty are not in the eyes of the beholder, but rather in the eye of God. He deems it so. So in chapter 3, 1 through 2, you know, they make this chapter break. The chapters and the verses were not in the original text of the New Testament. So you have to be careful with chapters and sections because sometimes they make the wrong chapter break. Here they make a chapter break, but it's just a continuation of what we just were reading. Because it starts off, two things that show us this. First, Nicodemus is someone who believes in Jesus or seemingly believes in Jesus because of the signs that he was doing. And that's just like the people we were just seeing in chapter 2, 23 through 25. The second thing is, what is in man? That's kind of how chapter 2 ends. And then chapter 3 begins, and there was a man named Nicodemus. Again, kind of carrying on this same uh, theme. It was the signs that drew him to Christ and got him to see that Jesus is a teacher from God, perhaps even a prophet. But believing Jesus is a mere good teacher or prophet is one of the largest roads currently paved in the world that will lead us straight to hell. Muslims believe Jesus was a great prophet, 
sent from God. Many people of many religions or even no religion at all acknowledge that Jesus is a great moral teacher. And yet Jesus in his teaching, if you just listen to his teaching, he doesn't leave us that option. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, uh, but I don't accept his claim to be God. He's talking about people that say that. He's a great moral teacher. He's not God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said that sort, the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. So in essence, what Lewis is saying Jesus taught that he is God. So if he's a great teacher, you should listen to his teaching. He's not a great teacher if you're saying what he taught is wrong. He's just a good teacher. So it's a contradiction. So here we have it. A rich, old ruler has now come to Jesus. A wealthy, religious man. A man of the Pharisees. A man that's called the teacher of Israel that he has done. And so, like 2.25 or sorry, 224 and 225 say... Jesus will not entrust himself to Nicodemus. He knows what is in Nicodemus. And so here's where we're left with. What is the solution here? What's the solution to this dilemma? What will cause Jesus to entrust himself to a man, to a person? So our second, uh, second point, we're going to look at what the new birth is according to chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. The new birth is a work of God and is necessary for our salvation. So God continues uh, to speak through John. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, which is symbolic for John. John always uses night to be symbolic of spiritual darkness. Some examples would be chapter 9, verse 4, chapter 11, verse 10, Chapter 13, verse 30, John always uses darkness to to symbolize night, to symbolize this idea of spiritual and moral darkness. And so what question did he ask him? We have no clue because Jesus just answers him. It just says, Jesus, he acknowledges him, you're a teacher from God, you've done signs. And then it says, Jesus answered him, said, truly, truly. We have no clue what the question is, but the text seems to reveal to us that the question is exactly what we're talking about. How can Jesus entrust himself to a man? That's the question. How can he entrust himself to a man? How can a man be saved? How can a person come to know Jesus and believe in him rightly? So Nicodemus, he, you, you can kind of see in verse 3 and verse 5, he kind of cuts straight to the chase. Jesus says this, Nicodemus, you're, you're like one of those who merely think I'm a good teacher because of the signs that I've done. Many Old Testament prophets did signs as well. Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Joshua, etc. But I am more than a good teacher. I am more than a prophet. And then he answers him and he gives him the one thing 
he needs. At this point, Nicodemus, you're dead in your sin, and you're a citizen of the kingdom of darkness, and you must be born again if you would see or enter the kingdom of God. So let's look at verse 3 and 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Truly, truly is uh, in Greek, amen, amen. It's it's how we conclude our prayers, amen, right? And it's from a Hebrew word, which is also amen, and it means to believe. It's the verb to believe. And so what when someone says amen, amen, what they're saying is this statement that I'm about to say is trustworthy and worth believing in and leaning upon. Or when we conclude a prayer, what we're saying to the Lord is we believe that you will accomplish the things that we have spoken, that we have asked of you, that we trust you. So essentially he is saying this statement is trustworthy and worthy of believing in. And he says it twice because it's important. The use of the word uh, birth as a metaphor for the one thing necessary for seeing and entering God's kingdom tells us that this is something we cannot accomplish on our, in our own works. So, I mean, you could ask the question, which one of us brought about our own birth? Hopefully no one. In Greek, it is in the passive voice, which tells us even further, birth is something that happens to us. It's not something that we bring about for ourselves. And so, interesting enough, so if there's birth, right? It's already kind of pointing out this idea that it's something God, that God has to do and not us. And then look at the next verse, this word again. Born again. Again in Greek can mean two things. It can mean again, which seems to be the way Nicodemus understands it by the rest of the conversation. Jesus doesn't correct him, so again seems to be a good one. But it can also mean from above, which is the way that John uses it everywhere else in the gospel. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 31. Chapter 8, verse 23. Chapter 19, verse 11. And so due to the strong evidence that it could literally mean it's interchangeable, it works either way. You must be born again in order to see the kingdom. You must be born from above in order to see the kingdom. It works either way. It's likely here that John intends to have a double meaning put here. That the birth, it is a second birth. It's not our first birth. And, And finally, this birth, the origin of it, is from above. It's from God. So in this parallel statement in verse 5, Right? He's going to use the same truly, truly statement and then kingdom of God at the end. And in the middle, he changes it. One says in verse 3, you must be born again. The other one in verse 5 says you must be born of water and spirit in order to uh, enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a highly contested and kind of debated uh, passage, this idea of born of water and spirit. I'm going to give kind of two popular interpretations. This comes from D.A. Carson. He outlines these two popular interpretations. Uh, this is, the first one is this could be referring to two separate births. All right, born of water means our first birth as a human being. And born of spirit means the new birth, regeneration. So that's one popular interpretation. Another one is others see born of water to be referring to Christian baptism and born of spirit referring to the reality behind Christian baptism. So baptism signifies we have died with Christ and we have been resurrected to new life by his death and resurrection. Regeneration is the actual meaning behind it. It's the substance behind it. Now, that's, a, that's another popular one that a lot of people say, but I'll just throw this out here. In verse 10, uh, Jesus rebukes Nicodemus for not understanding what he's saying. 
because he's a teacher of Israel, it doesn't seem to make sense that if Jesus is referring to Christian baptism, they would expect a Pharisee, a teacher of Israel, to understand that. And so that one seems to, to rule that out as well. The first interpretation also has problems. Nowhere in ancient writings that we found, outside of this possible exception, is human birth called the birth being born of water. Um, to negate both of these interpretations, we can actually just look at the text itself. Verse 5 is parallel to verse 3. So the birth talked about in verse 3 is also talked about in verse 5. Verse 3, it's about one birth. So verse 5, it naturally should be about one birth, unless he's changing something. Another thing, and this is like, I'm going to go grammar nerd for a second. Another thing is the, the word born is only used once. There's only one verb in verse 5, born. And that little word, the little preposition, of, born of water and spirit. There's actually only one of, and it's connected to water and spirit. And so what the, the Greek is kind of indicating here is that it's talking about all one birth. The birth that it's talking about is of water and spirit. It's just one birth, though. So there's the grammar, please. Sorry. Um, so I would argue that it's neither one of those interpretations, and we'll return to this in a little bit when we actually look at what Jesus is referring to in the Old Testament. So let's look, move on to verse 6. Um, verse 6 simply returns us to the question, what's in mankind? Uh, D.A. Carson summarizes this very simply. Like gives birth to like. The flesh can only give birth to flesh, and only the spirit can give birth to spirit. The source of the new birth is not found in mankind or in the flesh. It is only to those born again whom Jesus will entrust himself to. Verse 8 echoes this with an analogy. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so John, uh, again, is making a play on words here, Greek word. It's all the same Hebrew word as well. Wind, spirit, breath. And so he's making a play on Warren's words. Or another way of saying that is Jesus literally is making a wind pun, right? He has some creative wind puns, and we could say that we're now in his wind punnel seeking the wind. All right, I'll see myself out. <laughs> Clearly my wind puns are like vacuum cleaners. All right. He gives us an analogy to explain again the origin of the new birth. The wind or the spirit, it blows wherever it wants, it wishes. It's out of your control. What is, in our, what is in our control, Jesus? You hear its sound. You cannot cause the new birth. You cannot predict the new birth. But you can certainly perceive the effects of the new birth. You do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Again, reaffirming, we have no control over the new birth. So to make sure we get the metaphor, Jesus ends it with, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So moving, before we move on to kind of see what Jesus is intending for us to get out of this, look at verse 7. Jesus turns to Nicodemus and he says, Do not marvel that I... Grammatical point. The word you is now plural. It's been singular the whole time, and now Jesus makes it plural. And John does this a lot throughout his gospel. It's like Jesus is just talking to old Nicodemus, and then all of a sudden... He's talking directly to you as you're reading the text. And so he doesn't say, he says, Do not marvel that I said to Nicodemus, You all must be born 
again. Being born again or from above is not just necessary for Nicodemus to see and enter the kingdom of God, but it is just as necessary for you and for I to see and enter the kingdom of God. Again, we're left in a a, a kind of, it could be a scary or a terrifying position. Only God can give the new birth. Jesus will only entrust himself to those God gives the new birth by the Spirit. And thus we're left completely dependent, utterly helpless on God alone. He's our only hope. Uh, To kind of give this, there's a good story. C.S. Lewis writes in The Silver Chair. A good story that really just shows us this idea that we are 100% in God's hands, reliant upon him for mercy, and that we ought to throw ourselves upon him and just say, Lord, where can I go? Life is with you. Death is with you. You are the decider of all. And in the silver chair, uh, one of the little girl characters, her name is Jill. She's in a hard place. She's dying of thirst, and there's a stream of fresh water in front of her. But sitting next to this stream is Aslan, who is this ferocious you know, terrifying-looking lion. And she could turn away and die of thirst or search for another stream, or she could entrust herself to Aslan and rely that he's not going to eat her, as a lion might do. So she's given a little comfort by Aslan when he says this, if you're thirsty, you may drink. Still fearful, she asks, do you eat girls? That's a good question. Aslan replies, and this is the, this is the state of ter- terrifying, right, that we ought to have fear of God in our eyes. Aslan replies, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. I have done these things. She replies, then I daren't come and drink. Aslan returns, then you will die of thirst. She looks for another stream, but Aslan says, there is no other stream. Where will we go with all of our sinfulness? From what stream Will we drink? As many disciples abandoned Jesus later in John chapter 6, verse 66, ironically, he turns to the 12 who remain and he asks this question, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers the response we all ought to say daily to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? There is no other stream, right? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The regenerated, the born again, stick with Christ until the end. The regenerated grow in their knowledge of who Jesus really is. Though even here, Judas remains in the midst of the twelve. Even here, a wolf in the midst of the sheep. We must throw ourselves, according to Jesus, in his conversation with Nicodemus, our only hope is to throw ourselves upon Christ, knowing outside of him there is no other stream. There is no other stream. So let's look at this new birth a little bit more particular. Why does Jesus, in verse 10, rebuke Nicodemus and say, are you the teacher of Israel and yet for not understanding what Jesus is saying? Because what Jesus is saying is derived directly from the Old Testament. And so let's look at point three. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27 And chapter 37, teach us what Jesus means by being born again. So Nicodemus was held, uh, a teacher held in high regard. It says in the Greek, he's not just a teacher of Israel, it says the teacher of Israel. And yet he couldn't understand Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus is teaching from the Old Testament, he rebukes Nicodemus. So anyone who 
claims to know the Old Testament and follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob should understand very clearly what Jesus is meaning by being born of the water and spirit and being born again. We don't have time to really go behind all of the different themes found here in the Old Testament in John 3, but I'm going to go to the primary text behind Jesus' words. This is Ezekiel 36 and also Ezekiel 37. If you do want a good survey of kind of Old and New Testament teaching on regeneration, there is a little pamphlet. I love handing out pamphlets because they're easy to read. It's 36 pages long. It's called What is Regeneration by Matthew Barrett. What is Regeneration by Matthew Barrett? And he covers different Old Testament themes and New Testament themes teaching on the new birth. But here, Jesus' primary text is Ezekiel 36 through 37. And we find three themes that are in John chapter 3. First, we find a description of being born again that includes water and spirit. Second, we find a God-given metaphor for being born again that involves the same play on words, wind, spirit, and breath. And third, we find um, this idea of the kingdom of God at the end of Ezekiel 37 when Ezekiel says, My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. So let's look at these kind of in turn. The first one, uh, water and spirit. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this, and this is God talking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promises to his people in the midst of exile due to their sins that he's going to grab them and make them into a new people. And he's going to do this for the sake of his own name. Verse 22 in Ezekiel says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. When God's people live in sin, it causes others around to ask, well, how can God be holy if his people are not? Well, the solution to this problem is God is going to make his people into a new people and they will be holy as he is holy. And so let's look at these themes. He will sprinkle clean water on you, born of water. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a new heart of flesh, born again from above. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, born of the spirit. Note the use of the word in Ezekiel 36. He uses the word I over and over and over and over again, teaching us what Jesus has already taught Nicodemus. The work of being born again is a work that God himself does alone. It's God who says, I will do these things. So let's look at his 37, 1 through 10 is the famous Valley of Dry Bones passage. It says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of, of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, they were. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, breath, spirit, wind. I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and will cover you with skin, and I will put 
breath, spirit, wind, in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, sound, like Jesus said. You don't know where the wind blows, but you do hear its sound. The sound, behold, rattling a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath, wind, spirit in them. Then he said, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. So again, wind, breath, spirit, used in this analogy of these dry bones. The, literally, Ezekiel is just proclaiming the word of the Lord, and God causes the spirit, or wind, breath, to come in and rattle these bones together and make them new again and renew them into real people and fill them with the breath of life. Echoing even the Genesis creation account where God breathes into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. It continues the theme of God being in control, but it adds another element. Here he uses a prophet to speak his word to the people, and God brings about the reality of his word. You might imagine God saying or asking you about the lost around you. Can these bones live? And your answer should be, O Lord God, you know. If he speaks, He speaks to his church here and he says, prophesy over these bones. Preach the gospel of life over the walking dead. So our final one is also in Ezekiel 37, verses 24 through 28. I'm just going to read verse 24. Verse 24 says, my servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd and they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. David has been dead for nearly 400 years at this point. He's not talking about David. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the son of David. The results of the new birth is that Jesus will be our king and our only shepherd, and he will shepherd us to walk in his rules and be careful to obey his statutes. This last little verse, right, the rules and obey his statutes, connects us all the way back to Ezekiel 36, 27, where it says... um, I will put my spirit within them and cause them to walk and obey. The same exact phrase. And so you never truly acknowledge Jesus as king or grow in the only obedience that matters, obedience to his commands from the heart, if God doesn't give you his spirit. Hear the words of Christ again to Nicodemus in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you all must be born again. So to kind of end, I want to just look at some evidences given in Scripture of the new birth. Evidence is given. Um, in describing uh, what a false convert looks like, one who believes in Jesus, but Jesus for himself does not entrust himself to them. And then he's going to go over and he's going to give evidences of what a true convert looks like. These things go back and forth with each other. Uh, Michael Lawrence writes in another kind of pamphlet book called Conversion. He writes this about false conversion and then later conversion. A false convert is excited about heaven, but bored by Christians in the local church. Thinks heaven will be great whether God is there or not. Likes Jesus, but didn't sign up for the rest. Obedience, holiness, discipleship, suffering. 
can't tell the difference between obedience motivated by love and legalism, is bothered by other people's sin more than his or her own, and holds grace cheap and his own comfort costly. And over against this, he goes into 1 John and gives the the positive side. Uh, He loves fellow Christians in the local church because just ease in heaven, 1 John 1, 6-7-5-1, understands that following Jesus means discipleship, uh, chapter 1, verse 6, obeys God out of love for God, chapter 5, verse 2 through 3, is eager to confess and turn away from his or her sin, chapter 1, verse 9, holds grace costly and his own sins cheap, or sorry, his own desires cheap, 1, 7 and 1, 10. And so let's look at one other evidence, the main one, faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And you might be like, what? It doesn't make sense. You might say, but didn't those people believe in Jesus and receive nothing from him in John 2? Yes, but nonetheless, the primary and even first evidence of regeneration, of being born again, is faith in Christ. In fact, they appear on the scene in our hearts simultaneously, though regeneration causes faith as fire causes heat. Heat doesn't cause fire. Fire causes heat, but they all appear at the exact same time. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus said it this way in John 6, 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believing in Christ is the work of God. The supreme evidence of being born again is faith in Jesus. But what does this look like? What does this look like? Uh, I just want to point out a couple of things of what this looked like. True faith leads us to savor Christ more and more and is nurtured by Christ over and over again. There's three points, right? This is what true faith looks like. Our knowledge of Christ will grow over time. Our estimation of how valuable he is will grow over time. And Jesus, on his part, will visit us often and nurture us over and over and over again. So I'll give examples just from John. The Samaritan woman in John 4 first saw Jesus as just some Jewish man. Then later she said, oh, you're a prophet probably because you just told me of my sins. Then later still, you're the Christ. And then Jesus even tells her that he's God. I am who speaks to you. He uses the word I am, Yahweh. And she drops everything. She runs out of the village. She proclaims Jesus to others. She says, could this man be the Christ? Right? Her knowledge of who he was and her estimation of his value increased drastically. The man born blind in John 9 is healed by Jesus. After interviewed by the Pharisees, he proclaims synagogue. And Jesus comes and he finds him and he reveals that he is the son of man who is to come and judge the nations. The man responds, Lord, I believe. And he worships Christ. Faith in Christ led him to grow in knowledge of who Jesus is, his estimation of his value, and in crisis, Jesus came to him to nurture his faith further still. The faith of the one born again leads him or her to worship Christ like this man blind. Now, these are two maybe extreme examples, right? Maybe we haven't had the extreme example of experience of being supernaturally healed or the immediate conversion from heinous sin like the Samaritan woman. Maybe we grew up in church and always remember Jesus, 
what about us? You know? Well, let's look at Nicodemus' story. Nicodemus shows up three times in the book of John. Our conversation that he just had. And then in chapter 750, he sticks his head out just a little bit to protect Jesus from his peers, the Pharisees. Uh, in chapter seven, or sorry, yeah, 7, verse 50, it literally, the, the Pharisees are judging Jesus without a trial and ready just to condemn him to death. And Nicodemus just kind of says, doesn't our law require a man to have a fair trial, essentially? And you, know, and you can imagine. So now he's no longer with Jesus at night alone where no one can see him, but now he's publicly proclaiming Christ a little bit and sticking up for him a little bit. His estimation obviously has gone up a little bit of him. Now we see him again in John 19, verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Nicodemus becomes ceremonially unclean for the week of the Passover. Now, the Passover was a whole week-long thing called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was basically the first day of Passover. And so he is giving up one of the most important feasts to go and to come into contact with a dead body, uh, particularly Jesus. And in essence, what John wants you to see here is he traded the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for the true fulfillment of both of these things. For Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and he is the bread sent from heaven to feed our souls. His knowledge of Christ has grown. Check. The spices he brought for Jer- that he brought to Jesus' burial are estimated to be about 150000 to 200000 U.S. dollars today. 200 grand to anoint a, a person's dead body. The estimation of Christ's value has grown. Check. And then the very next story in John 19 is Jesus' resurrection. I can't prove it, but I'll speculate a little bit. I would wager that Nicodemus was one of the 500 that Jesus then appears to after his death. Can't prove it. But we know that Jesus visits those who believe in him and nurtures them over and over and over again. So to conclude, I just want to um, I want to read a parable, and I'm going to leave it at that. It gets across what we're talking about, the, the um, importance of why we need to have a biblical understanding of conversion and what's at stake in this. And as I read this parable, and you're kind of looking over your own life and perhaps testing your own selves, Take the five to ten year approach. God grows things slowly. Oftentimes we can like be like, oh, I sinned on Monday, it's Sunday, I must not be a believer. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. Take the five to ten year approach. What does your walk look like today compared to five to ten years ago? Have you grown in your knowledge of who Christ is? Has your heart grown in its value of Jesus and its estimation of his glory? Has Jesus come to you time in and time out and nurtured you and grown your faith? So let's end with this parable and Jesus' explanation of it. Matthew 13 says this, He put another parable before them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemies came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to him, An enemy has done this. 
So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather weeds first and bind them into bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And later explaining the parable, he says, Then he left the crowds and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus answered them, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is in the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Thankful for your power, for your spirit. I pray that you would visit us again, nurture our faith again, strengthen our faith again, grow our knowledge and understanding of you again, grow our hearts to treasure and value you and savor you even more today. As we uh, sing songs, Lord, I pray that Uh, the words on our heart would match the words on our lips, that we would sing these songs to a Christ who is worth far more than $200,000. Inestimable. God in the flesh. Show us again your glory in his face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.